G'day, I'm Steve Bell, and welcome to another instalment of Rewind. All of the podcasts we've done so far have taken us back to the previous millennium, set in either the 80s or the 90s, but this three-part episode is based in more recent history, taking us back just 20 years to the very start of the 2000s. The album we're going to be looking at is called Since I Left You, the debut album by a young group of Melbourne music lovers who called themselves The Avalanches. It's a bold, ambitious, audacious piece of art, painstakingly constructed over 18 months, but belying that labour by existing as a carefree and euphoric batch of songs, each flowing seamlessly into the next, like some mysterious mixtape from above. A collection timeless in feel because it essentially exists in a vacuum, like some exotic transmission from another far more beguiling dimension. Since I Left You was released in Australia in November 2000, delayed from its original September release date for reasons we'll explore later. It came out in the UK in April of 2001 and didn't appear on shelves in the United States until the following November, which places us slap bang in the middle of the album's 12-month release window. Obviously, we would have liked to release this podcast on the anniversary of its Australian release, but due to a combination of the COVID pandemic throwing a spanner in the works and the band at the time still preparing for the release of their third album, We Will Always Love You, which came out mid-December 2020, they're only celebrating since I left you's 20th anniversary now with a deluxe reissue, and if it's good enough for them, then it's good enough for us. So let's dive in. Get a drink, have a good time now. Welcome to paradise. That line you just heard was a random line of dialogue from a cheesy 1986 TV comedy film called Club Med, a romantic getaway adventure starring Linda Hamilton that's pretty much disappeared into the pop culture void where it belongs. It's also the exact same line of dialogue that you first hear on Since I Left You less than a minute into the opening title track. Get a drink, have a good time now. Welcome to paradise. Paradise. The entire song, and the entire album, is comprised of thousands of such samples laid into a gorgeous, complex tapestry. Nobody really knows how many samples make up the album. Conventional accepted wisdom puts the number at 3,500, but not even the band truly know how many are in there. Most of the samples were taken from vinyl, lovingly accumulated from Melbourne op shops and record stores at a time when the medium was deemed obsolete and virtually worthless, with others like the one we just heard, taken from old movies and TV shows. Some of the samples featured music, some were dialogue, some were just random sounds, but they all end up being woven together into something fresh and new and unique, music unlike most of us had ever heard before. These days, the Avalanches consists of two members, Robbie Chater and Tony de Blasi, two high school mates from Maryborough in country Victoria. But 20 years ago, they were part of a bigger version of the Avalanches, which featured four studio members and blossomed to six performers when time came to hit the stage for their incendiary live shows. Way back in 1994, Robbie had met Darren Seltman in an inner-city Melbourne share house and they'd started writing songs together, soon joined in the share house by Robbie's old schoolmate Tony. When the trio added drummer Manabu Ito, their first band, Alarm 115, was born, as Robbie remembers. I mean, it's all a bit hazy now, but... um. 
Yeah, it was myself, uh, Tony and Darren living in just a tiny shared house and we were we would just visit junk stores and find these um you know cheap old guitars you know we had no money so or, or old keyboards and and we were just like using whatever we could get our hands on really to make kind of uh noise 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 music basically like so we loved uh a band called drive like jehu and sebado and bands like this the velvet underground and my bloody valentine and we were just trying to um you know, none of us were great musicians, but we we're just trying to make a beautiful kind of racket. And uh, while we we're in these uh, junk stores, we started buying old, old records as well. And I guess that that's the beginning of the the transition. Um, I, I was doing a, a, a film course at RMIT in Melbourne. Uh, so I, I started that when I was 18. And um, they had a huge, incredible recording studio there and no one wanted to use it because everybody enrolled in this course, of course, just wants to be the next Martin Scorsese or whatever. You know, everybody wanted to make films. Nobody wanted to do the soundtrack. So they were just like, you can just use the studio. So I just had that to myself for like three years and basically um, just taught myself the recording studio. I mean, I'd always been fascinated with recorded sound, but that, so I was just like in heaven and, um, I had access to it 24 hours a day and that's where uh, we made our first demo tape. They, there was an old Ensonic sampler in there that I taught myself how to use. So I began sampling some of these old junk store records and I guess at the same time we were listening to things that were coming out of the States like The Far Side and some uh, The Far Side. There was a Dr Octagon record that we loved um, and then, you know, in, in a broader cultural sense, like, you know, there was Beck and Portishead and these guys were sampling as well. So um, all of that sort of came together and, you know, we started making that shift from this sort of noise music to this sample-based music. But in, in a way it feels like the same project to me because, you know, they were busted old guitars that we were using and then they were just cheap busted old records and a busted old sample we were using. It was still um, not not much equipment and really just uh, us making the best of what we had. That band was only together a short time, recording one four-track demo before drifting apart. But as Tony recalls, the seeds for the avalanches had already been planted. I mean, you know, we started off when, when Robbie and I and Darren all shared a house together in Carlton and, um, you know, Robbie and I were sharing a room and Darren and Joe, who was a friend of ours, you know, that Darren um, hooked up with or with boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, so we, we all just decided to kind of start a band. So we'd be just thrashing about on guitars and bass and screaming and doing all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's kind of how it all started. And then I, I moved out and lost touch with those guys for maybe a year or two. So and Darren and Robbie were still doing, you know, music stuff, but Robbie had, because um, he was doing that, that RMIT, RMIT course, uh, started using samplers and getting into all that stuff. So I kind of met up with them a couple of years later and they kind of had, you know, the beginnings of the sample-orientated avalanches going on and, um, we just met up one night and they were like, Tony, we want you to, to, to come and join this band. We're going to start taking this out and doing gigs and, and play me some music they'd been doing from 
the uni and I was like, this is really great. This is interesting stuff and with all the samples and that. And um, so I was like, cool, let's do it. And then, you know, we organised a a practice, I think, the next day and we all just kind of had a few beers and then sat down and jammed along to some of these samples and, you know, that that's we kind of went from there. So just a quick recap. By 1996, the band has dissolved. Tony has disappeared from the scene for a while. And Robbie and Darren are taking advantage of having the run of the RMIT studio to delve into the world of sampling. They'd accumulated crates of old vinyl while scouring op shops for old instruments they could use in their noise band. And it was these records that formed the basis of the exotic new music they were making. The pair assembled a 30-song demo tape that they sent out to labels and industry figures under the moniker The Pan Amateurs, trying to stir up some interest in the project. While Robbie and Darren had been moonlighting as the rhythm section in former harem scarum frontman Charlie Marshall's project The Body Electric, where they'd essentially replaced Jim and Warren from The Dirty Three, once they'd finished the Pan Amateurs tape, they needed a band to bring the songs to life in the live realm. Robbie at this stage was living in a house with another old schoolmate, Gordon McQuilton, and as this was where they'd rehearse, he was soon in the band, along with the newly returned Tony and the four-piece set out to leave their mark on the thriving Melbourne live scene. These days, Linda Besides is managing director of Mushroom Music Publishing, but back in the 90s, her storied career was still in its infancy. Even then, she was working for the same company, but as the A&R manager. But as an avid music lover, she recalls first being drawn into the Avalanche's orbit via their chaotic live show. Yeah, it was really different. I mean, you have to kind of capture the time. It was the 90s. I don't remember much of the 90s, but that's (laughs) exactly how it should be if you lived it, right? Um, Yeah, so my memories are rusty, but to set the scene, it was, you know, it was a very heady, rebellious, experimental time. Um, You know, there was anger and destruction and pushing boundaries and no structure, At the same time, it was thought-provoking and artistic and innovative and interesting. And it was um, pre-internet and social media, so even mobile phones were scarce at the time. And the Punters Club in Fitzroy was our Facebook equivalent. Um, But I remember Robbie and Tony originally started in a punk noise band. Uh, Trifecta, an indie Melbourne label um, started up by Tom Larnick-Jones and Tim Everest were friends of mine. And um, they actually released the label's first single, which was also the Avalanche's debut release, the single Rock City, and it had an incredible B-side. Thank you, Caroline. Um, and that's, yeah, kind of how I, I found out about them. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was unpredictable. I, I remember some of those early pub shows as well. And you can, I mean, even then they were developing and, and evolving. I remember um, on stage they would swap and rotate instruments. Their live show was kind of party vibes. It was, you know, super loose and animated and a bit punk. But it was crazy. Um, I just remember how much fun it was. And you wanted to be up front, you know, to witness it all. It was, what the hell's going on here? I I loved it. It was a time of, you know, indie alternative rock. I think that was massive. So, you know, there were elements of that in there. I mean, people were listening to um, My Bloody Valentine and, you know, Portishead and DJ Shadow, Stereo Lab and Chemical Brothers, etc. And I guess that initially, you know, there was that a bit of the Beastie Boys element in there, but it, it did change. 
Um, I, I don't know whether that was due to, you know, Robbie being at RMIT and having um, access, you know, to the studio there. I think that had a lot to do with it as well. Now, Linda mentioned the Avalanche is putting out their first single, Rock City, on Melbourne independent label Trifecta, but it was also Trifecta's first release as well. The label, which would run for a decade and put out dozens of albums by some of the best indie rock bands in Australia, as well as high-profile overseas bands, started literally to put out the first Avalanche's single release. Tom Larnick-Jones, these days label manager at excellent Melbourne indie Milk Records, vividly recalls when the Avalanche's first prompted him to start his own label. So I guess um, I became friends with a guy called Tim Everest, who eventually started Trifecta Records with me, and he was from... um, from Ballarat and um, we met through work and his social circle was basically people from Ballarat, Maryborough and Clunes, which are all in regional Victoria. And um, Robbie and Gordy in particular um, were, the, were the two members of the original Avalanches lineup that I guess, guess I got to know first through that social sort of group that I joined. Um, and Robbie was always in his room tinkering away at music and I'd heard that they'd had a band previously, um, it was Alarm 115, and they talked a lot about a guy called Manitoba who had, not Manitoba, Manabu who had played with them. Um, and I, I guess the first time I ever heard actual music they'd done was when they put out that Pan Amateurs tape um, and that had... Um, the songs that uh, Manabu had sung on um, and I think it was Robbie was studying at RMIT and I think he'd done a lot of that in the studio there so so all of a sudden you know after hearing about Robbie making music for a year or so or Robbie and you know the rest of the guys making music I guess I um, yeah first actually heard something with that tape and then pretty quickly after um, there was a show, if I remember correctly, which was the first show, which was at Nicholson's. It might have had lots of different names throughout the years, but it was at one stage called Nicholson's. It was on Nicholson Street in, in North Fitzroy. Um, I think it was renowned that maybe the Dead Kennedys had played there at some stage. Um, and yeah, the first show they played, I think they might have still been called the Pan Amateurs then or were still playing around with different names. Um, and because we were all part of this big social group, a whole group of us went down. But I think I remember noticing a few other people there as well who'd kind of somehow cottoned on. Um, definitely Guy from Chapter Music was there. Um, and I know that him and Ben were both uh, big fans of uh, the Body Electric, which both Darren and Robbie had played in previously. Um, And yeah, I I can't really remember much about the first show, but I remember it was, it was kind of uh, energetic, um, uh, kind of mayhem. I think a lot of the first, you know, especially six months of shows, there were kind of technical difficulties all the time, but, you know, I think the enthusiasm, um, that they kind of exuded, kind of didn't, you know, made up for any five minutes of waiting for a, a sample to load or something like that. Um, and then at that show, after that show ended, Tim, who I'd met everyone through, um, we decided then and there that we wanted to start a record label and we wanted the Avalanches to be the first, first um, 
acts we put out and we asked them that night and they agreed to do it and then it happened pretty quickly after that yeah fantastic so that's actually the start of trifecta spawn from the avalanches definitely yeah from you know i think for a long time uh, i'd wanted to start a record label but i'd worked for a distributor shock and you weren't allowed to have your own label and i'd sort of just left shock um and tim was working at all go go and so it sort of just uh yeah, it was, it was the first time I was able to do it. And, you know, Avalanches were the first band we both liked. Um, we had a third person in theory, which was Paul from Girling Presser. Um, but he kind of, before the first Avalanches record, before the Avalanches 7-inch came out, he was kind of out of the picture because he was still at shock and wasn't allowed to have a record label. So at this stage, Robbie and Darren, and soon Tony and Gordy, were getting heavily into the then Wild West of sampling, back when it was a relatively new innovation and pretty much unregulated. This coincided with a time when the advent of the compact disc had begun to make vinyl virtually redundant, a decline augmented by the arrival of the internet, meaning that people could now access music digitally as well. It was the golden age for vintage vinyl, with pre-loved wax both abundant and cheap, as Robbie recalls. It was like the Melbourne junk stores were just full of it. Like we were basically just op shopping, and we would uh, have a map of <laughs> Melbourne, uh, the tra- the train lines, and follow a different train line every week, and, and just hop off at every station and and raid the junk stores. So that's looking back now, it's like that's how passionate we were, and we kind of knew what we were doing was we were meant to be doing, or something like that, you know. So even though at the, in the beginning, you know, the music, the music. Uh, like on that first demo tape didn't really match what was in my head. I knew we were kind of heading somewhere and we, we devoted our lives to it. You know, it was, so it wasn't, uh, I, I know when we were doing those early shows at that time, people just thought it was just like a bunch of crazy kids, but actually like in our hearts, we were, you know, really in love with what we were doing and this search for vinyl. And I think geographically it was, you know, we were so far removed from the rest of the world and there wasn't like rare, all these beautiful rare uh, funk and soul records like, you know, I find when I go to the States now, it was kind of like Flotsam and Jetsam, you know, like uh, a lot of Exotica records and Martin Denny and Strange Hawaiian Strings and, you know, this kind, all this stuff that had end up, ended up in Australia from the 50s onwards. So that was kind of our source material and we just looked for these beautiful little moments in, um, in what people had thrown away really. Yeah, I was reading there's like an inverse factor, like that the crappier the record, the more enjoyable it is to use. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know about that. I guess <laughs> I guess it's just like, um, yeah, the joy of discovery. And even on some some strange old record that, that I wouldn't, you know, couldn't listen to all the way through, there's just these little beautiful moments of, you know, it's like the sun coming out from behind a cloud or something and you just hear this little moment and away you go. Robbie explains that this search for samples from old records is a dark art guided by the gut as much as the brain. It's completely, it's completely intuition. Um, and I still can't really describe it or, or put it into words, you know, because I can be listening to a record one day and be in a certain mood and not really hear any samples on it. And then, you know, six months later, I'm in a completely different mood one morning and the sun's coming through the window and I'm just hearing these beautiful moments all over the place. So it depends on having the right record of connecting with how I'm feeling that day and, and connecting with what I'm wanting to express. And um, 
all of a sudden it might even just be a little tiny little flourish at the end of a song but it's just got a feeling and, and you grab that and away you go um you know like we will catalog stuff like if you find a great if a drum break or percussion and stuff i know might come in handy later you know we do we do grab that stuff along the way but as much as possible we try to keep it uh, in the spur of the moment and, and working from intuition, working from our heart. So at this early stage, I think I was just making stuff at uh, RMIT um, and Darren and Tony would come in and then we kind of just started making our way out onto the Melbourne pub scene and just playing shows and we just didn't know what we were doing but um, we just thought, let's do it, let's just dive in. Um, so there was this kind of, um, it was almost from the beginning there were two parallel projects like there was this raucous um chaotic live thing and then in parallel there was kind of a more reflective thing developing on the side which is more just a studio thing and for the first few years they ran they fitted together quite well but then as we were getting towards since i left you time it's like like with since i left you we really found our own little our own sound and our own unique um, place in the musical universe. And, and once you find that place and you've kind of feel like this is our sound, this is us, then it's, then you're just free to, I can understand why that record flowed out so quickly because we'd found our own little place. that didn't really sound like anyone else, you know, and, and around that time I started to get a little uncomfortable with the live shows because they were still just this kind of destructive setting things on fire, smashing everything kind of, punk thing and they they were they it wasn't really reflective of where my heart was i guess following tony also remembers getting heavily into crate digging in this early period and agrees that melbourne's location in the far-flung reaches of the planet significantly affected the vibe of what they could access i mean it was so interesting because we've been talking about this but the the melbourne crate digging back then was so different we we you know we did it just a, a Mike D podcast the other day and we were, you know, talking about, you know, when they were digging in New York, it, the records they were getting, you know, were so cool. All this amazing, you know, funk stuff, disco. Like, we just didn't have that here. It just, it, it just didn't come across. And especially, I guess, if people had that music, it would be, um, you know, they'd keep it. But, but in our rock shops here, we had the weirdest stuff. It was just so... You had to kind of listen through so much bad stuff. And it was all kind of this lounge and exotica and, you know, this Jane Fonda workout records and Trini Lopez and, I mean, cool cool stuff. So with it, all these, this kind of music. So I guess that we kind of had to make do with all that for Since I Left. You just find little quirky samples. Um, and, and that in itself, I feel like if we were, you know, in New York to make that record, it would have sounded completely different completely different so it's very much in that way um you know the the melbourne australian influence um came through on that record just in what we could find in op shops we didn't and, and we didn't have money to go to proper record stores and spend 30 dollars on a record it was like shit we can get five for a dollar here <laughs> let's go through and you know let's do that. that that's the only way we could do it we're all in the doll you know it didn't come from money at least it was in that era where Rightly or wrongly, vinyl had sort of been devalued to a degree and it was relatively oh, cheap compared to now. Yeah, I mean, massively. And you you definitely would find some some little nuggets of gold in there, like you, you could find a cool Stones record or, you know, 
Exile on Main Street or something like that, and you could get it for a dollar. And and I feel like it was just at the the end of um, where op shops weren't then raided by secondhand record stores or eBay and all that kind of stuff that would be able to pick up something for fifty cents and then sell it on for twenty dollars. And 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 then you know you know op, op shops were quite slim pickings to start off with anyway, but. After that kind of happened, you would not find anything good. It was like people were just going around and doing the same things we were doing, but then on selling it in their own secondhand record stores for, you know, quadruple, ten times the price that they got it in the op shops. Did you enjoy that? Um, the discovery aspect of it, like looking for little random things like that. It was. It was really fun. It was. It was good. I mean, it was fun. But I like. I always just remember. You know, you'd come away from you know, doing your little lock shop thing and you just had this nose that was just full of dust and and there's like a smell because they're all so old and you just go picking through them and then all of a sudden you're sneezing for about four hours afterwards. But it, it was and it was like back then even just the way, you know, in the late 90s or, or just the, you know, the, the S900 days when we did the El Producto days were you couldn't fit that much music on to like onto a floppy then so you could you know have a beat and then you know a couple of samples after that so sometimes you just do this real slow thing that that you know it, it was you were just a bit more creative in how you would use the samples because you know it wasn't just i mean you could do all that but then you just try and find ways to to fit into this tiny little scope of memory that you had um and it was uh, yeah it was just really i was, I was you know smoking lots of weed at the time it was so much fun i'd make just these crazy songs flip everything backwards and i'd play with the dudes and they'd be like man what are you smoking and i'm like you know what i'm smoking <laughs> but it was it was really cool it was it was fun and it was before everything became you know kind of business um with record companies and and management and all that stuff it was very it was just very light free people having a ball um yeah Tony also believes that finding the perfect sample is an inexact science at best and that you've got to be willing to just go with the flow to capture those perfect moments. I think if you're looking for something specific, you can miss, like it's too easy to, to, to just miss something um, that you could use that could be really cool. And there, there are samples that, it was interesting, we did a, a little Q&A um, just talking about some songs with samples yesterday or the day before and and kind of just talking about the way that these other people use samples and and there was the panda bear track that a company in nordica and it's like this sample of a melanesian chant thing and it's like you just you can almost miss where he the bit very very sampled but he's just used just used this little bit like he wouldn't have been looking for that going it's not an obvious thing that stands out. So if you're kind of thinking, oh, I want a funk loop or, you know, something like that, I think you'll miss just a little thing like that. So, oh, wow. And he's just like looped that and has made a whole song around it. So it's good just being open to, to kind of, depending on what mood you're in, you know, what you're listening to, going, oh, okay, or, or you know, what's this one going to sound like if I reverse it or, or, you know, speed it up or slow it down and things like that. So it's just being a little bit creative with what you get as well. Tom Larnick-Jones also remembers this golden age of vinyl hunting and some of its more random relics. You know, I've got memories of that too and there were certain records 
if they ever saw a copy of, they would just buy it. And I think I think one of them was like Rumours by Fleetwood Mac and Darren had like 30 copies or something of it. Um, and there was this other record that they had a lot of copies of, which I had one at one stage, which was a record about Halley's Comet, which um, was made in Melbourne um, of all places. And it was such a strange record, but I remember them having multiple copies and maybe I was given one by one of them. But yeah, Melbourne is the perfect place. I feel like, you know, um, you know Melbourne has all the, all, all the record stores. At the time we had like, you know, Missing Link and um, Greville and Orgogo. But, you know, things like Dixon's Records had, you know, five shops and, you know, some in really outer suburbs. Um, op shops weren't plundered like they are now where there's nothing, nothing left. Um, but I kind of feel like the band was also not looking for the obvious records. They were looking to, to find something, you know, to, to delve deep. Now, before we move on, we've got to talk about the band name. When the guys started bringing the Pan Amateurs songs into the live realm, they couldn't decide on a band name, so it would change every gig. Not really the most robust business plan, meaning that they tried on for size a succession of increasingly dubious monikers before finally settling on the avalanches about five gigs in. I think that's just because we were embarrassed, honestly. <laughs> and we were like, so, because well, I remember we, we were... Uh, right, I lived in a different share house at that time. We were rehearsed in the kitchen and we would just, we rehearsed so hard for like months and months and months and months and months. And, but we never had done a show and we, we all had to looked at each other one day and said, kind of, we've got to play. Like we've got to just book some shitty little pub and play a show because, you know, we're obviously believing what we're doing if we're all turning up every week and, and putting so much time and energy into this. But there was still a side of us, so I think we were kind of embarrassed and, like, it was just so different to anything else that was going on in, in the live music scene at that time. So um, we just chose a name and we said, well, we'll just pick a different name every show and if one day if we get a record deal, we'll, like, the name we have that, at that, that show, we'll, we'll keep. <laughs> and that's actually, that's actually what happened. <laughs> Judging by the other names, I'm, it's pretty lucky that... Uh... <laughs> yeah oh look i think there's a bit of myth involved in oh, some true? of those other names yeah that were, were just kind of boring names i can't <laughs> can't remember what they were i think one of them was named after an old yamaha keyboard or something and some yamaha superstar or something like that so no swinging monkey cocks and stuff like oh that. that might have been one that was that sounds very darren to me <laughs> 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 okay so by now we're at mid-1997 They've settled on the name The Avalanches and their debut 7-inch is about to come out on fledgling Melbourne indie trifecta. But around this time, they finally got a bite from one of the Pan Amateurs demos they'd sent out when Sydney promoter Steve Pav, then best known for bringing Nirvana out just as Nevermind exploded in 92, as well as co-owning Fallaheen Records and his ill-fated but excellent Somersault Festival in the summer of 95-96, got back to them very excited about what he'd heard and super keen to work with them. Before the Rock City 7-inch was even out, the Avalanches signed to Pav's brand new label Wondergram for a single EP deal, setting the wheels in motion for the El Producto EP which would land in the final weeks of 97 and featuring a newly recorded version of Rock City. Unsurprisingly for an EP with a track on it called Rap Fever, there was plenty of rapping and MC action on El Producto something that Tom Larnick Jones recalls being very reflective of their live show at the time. First, here's a snippet of the trifecta version of Rock City, 
which came out in September along with the B-side. Thank you, Caroline. I think Rock City was the first sort of song that had that really kind of heavy, or, you know, really lots of lots of rapping in it, I guess, which El Producto was kind of full of rapping as well. Whereas maybe the tape, the Pan Amateurs tape, you know, had a lot more kind of different sounds going on and not necessarily vocals all the time. Um, and I feel like, I wouldn't be too sure, but I feel like maybe Rock City, Rock City came together pretty quickly uh, as opposed to, um, like I say, thank you, Caroline, and the other tracks which were on the cassette, which I think had been laboured over for a long time. But that's just my recollection of it. I'm not exactly sure if that was the case. <laughs> it was two pressings of 500, which are worth a fortune these days, of yes. the seven. Did you get good traction with it? Did it go well? It did. So um, um, initially... Um, I guess we, we put it out. We didn't really know much about what we're doing. I think we've got a handwritten agreement with the band um, at the time. Uh, and Corduroy had just started pressing records in Melbourne at the time. And Guy from Chapter Music, who was at that first gig, uh, he was working at Corduroy. So he was able to help facilitate the pressing. And it, it happened pretty quickly. Um, and initially it was... Um, just selling it through shows and selling it through record shops like All Go Go and Polyester in Melbourne. Uh, we basically had you know two or three shops in each city. They all, um, uh, every store reordered, so they all sold out. And at gigs, we were selling heaps as well. So we, just, we did a second pressing, and that was the red pressing. And that one, after a while, we still had a, little, had a few left. And at that stage, um, I spoke to um, Sally at Shock Export, which is a ex you know, music exporter here in Melbourne, and um, offered it to her to, to, to get some overseas. And she sold it into, or sold it to the UK and it made its way into Rough Trade. Um, and that's where um, Leo from XL and Rex first discovered the band from picking up one of those seven inches there. And I kind of, yeah, I went to, to shock to, to export them because it kind of had dried up a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, we still had a couple hundred left, so they went out the door and then it was all gone from there. Definitely think that time was a really good time. It was, um, it felt like every weekend the avalanches were playing. Um, uh, and it would seem like every time you went, there'd be um, the same group of 30 or 40 people who were all the kind of friendship circle of the band going. So it was a really great time. Um, I guess there were some kind of interesting things happening around then too, um, like Revolver opened around about that time. And oh, I think the Avalanches and Girling, both of them played at Revolver so many times. Um, and that was kind of a new experience to everyone, kind of everyone had been used to going to gigs at the Punners Club, but to go to something that was a gig venue, but then a nightclub later on was, you know, exciting and new. Um, but yeah, it was a really good time. And I guess the band's rise was pretty pretty quick. I think shortly after the 7-inch came out, um, Steve Pav had heard of them and offered them a Blues Explosions support. 
and you know once they did that you know they got so many shows you know in the first couple of years you know touring with public enemy all these kind of dream gigs came through pretty quickly so yeah it was great now aligned with steve pav the avalanches started landing cool international supports and at this early stage in the game robbie remembers that things were perhaps progressing a little too well i think people were genuinely just confused and um and you know, so are we. You know, when you're when you're kids and you're a bunch of friends and you're making this music, it's like you're finding your way as you go. And we were finding ourselves in in front of in front of people. And you know, we, we'd sent that uh, the demo tape that I made initially. We sent that to Steve Pav, and he he loved it. And he started giving us a bunch of support slots. So like that John Spencer show, I can remember that. Like that was our fifth ever show. Oh. And, we, and, and we were like, we, we don't know what we're doing, you know. So all of a sudden we were playing in front of, these were kind of big shows and um, still figuring out who we were. Uh, so I, I know a lot of people in Australia that had seen us play, play live were very surprised when Since I Left You came along because it was like, it was, it was like a completely different thought or something. Um, and whereas people overseas since I left you just arrived and they had no preconceptions of us as a live act or anything, it was just this record that dropped out of nowhere. The Avalanche's sound was still morphing, but at this juncture, both on stage and on record, they carried a vibe something akin to an Antipodean Beastie Boys. Here's a bit of run DNA from El Productor. on El Producto being a natural extension of both the band's live show and their influences at the time, but that even then he was aware of a potential shift towards using just samples. I guess, I, you know, I've always loved hip-hop and, and um, but at, at that time I remember that, that the Dr Octagon and the Wu-Tang N36 Chambers were, were quite inspirational and just how tough they were and how they'd use samples and I think even in the... You know, obviously, uh, you know, before since I left you, there was El Producto, which was a lot more hip hop orientated. You know, with Darren doing all the rapping, and and you can even hear in in the lyrics um, in El Producto, Producto, you can hear the the Doctor Octagon influence in just the the crazy way all the words were put together. So we we're very very um into that at the time. And I, I even remember when we were mixing El Producto. 
that, you know, we, we kept playing the Dr. Octagon record and, and trying to make it as big as that. And we were going, okay, it's as big as the doctor. It's as big as the doctor. Um, so yeah, that, that was quite inspirational around then. And, um, and then obviously from there, you know, went on to doing since I left you and we still had some of those, we, we were using, you know, the sample for since I left you had been like the da, 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 had been like this crazy hip hop song that we were doing live. It wasn't on, I don't think it was on our producto, but we'd been doing it as this hip hop song and, you know, with this stupid little melody over the top of it. So that got transferred, you know, eventually into the, the main groove of, of since I left you. I think with El Producto, like we just thought, okay, it's kind of cool, but but um, it's not as I, th- I think we can. We just thought we could do better, um, and just the idea of just having everything kind of made of samples was was very different. And you know, normally you'd use samples, but there'd be a voice over the top, and um, just that idea of like having every every section of the record. Um, as samples was was really interesting. So now things, on the surface anyway, seem to speed up. During 98, Pav ditches the Wondergram imprint and starts a new label, Modular Records, signing the Avalanches for their debut album as the Marquee Act, although by the time Since I Left You comes out, he'd already had massive wins with both Ben Lee and The Living End. Supports are coming thick and fast. The Avalanches tour Australia with Public Enemy, and would soon enough support the Beastie Boys themselves down the East Coast. In May 1999, a UK label, Rex Records, releases the Undersea Community EP, featuring four of the songs from the 96 Pan Amateurs demo. Here's a taste of the title track, Undersea Community. But behind the scenes, Robbie and Darren were going deep down the rabbit hole of Plunderphonics, cutting themselves off from the world and existing almost solely in the thrilling new universe that they were creating. Robbie vividly remembers now how they began creating these sonic vistas using nothing but the samples they'd accumulated. I remember, like, because I start, first started messing around with recorded sound. I was probably 14 or 15 with a four-track recorder and making tape loops, and so... To me, it feels like a journey that began there and culminated. It was a journey of discovery and culminated, you know, like when I was, I guess, 21 or something and we'd, be, we'd made our first EP and then we were, like, diving into making Since I Left You. And at that time, it was just this beautiful, everything was kind of crystallised. Um, so we were listening to, I mean, there was all this, awesome electronic music coming out at that time and Daft Punk had put out their first record, I think. And, um, you know, Chemical Brothers, we loved, like I mentioned, The Far Side and all this American hip hop. Um, And, but, you know, the more you learn about your craft, like the craft of sampling and the craft of uh, making drums, particularly out of samples, the more you realise what an art form it is. And, um, I kind of quickly realised, like, it's going to take me a lifetime to make drums that hit as hard as, say, Lock, Lock and Beats or something like that. Like, that is a whole 
craft in and of itself. And um, I don't want to kind of be like second best at like at something like that. Like so, it was a conscious decision to to shift a little and make go with a lighter sound. So we were sampling all these strange old '60s records anyway that had no bass in them and they had soft drums. And so we kind of it was like this magical moment where we found our own place in the musical universe, and we're like, we're going to make a record that sounds like a lost transmission and it doesn't have to work on the dance floor it can but it doesn't have to and it doesn't always have to have the biggest drums it doesn't always have to have a lot of bass and and that was a way of like blending our love of like the beach boys with de la soul or something like that so the techniques of of a hip-hop record but our love of like strange 70s pop music and then i guess the third element would have been our love of uh, bands like my bloody valentine that kind of wooziness so when you put all those things together we kind of um out popped our own you know unique unique sound and it was also a conscious decision to remove ourselves from the record so this we didn't play any instruments we didn't we didn't sing or add any vocals like we had previously and it, it was just um it just felt like a beautiful transmission floating in from elsewhere and when when we hit upon that sort of sound it just came pouring out in in like 18 months, which is really quick to make kind of a record like that. Um, And there were no extra leftover songs. There's like 18 songs on the record. We made 18 songs, bang, 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 and and that was it. So it's it's just like uh, a wonderful thing to experience actually when everything sort of comes together and you're in this beautiful state of flow um, and a record like that just comes pouring, pouring out. Robbie remembers the process of putting Since I Left You Together as being both exhaustive and exhausting. Like it was like, I guess, I guess people, um, like, cause we're always just like this crazy party band or whatever. And, um, but making sense I left you was like lots of long lonely nights, you know, just at the computer, um, searching for the right elements to finish a song, you know, and, and because we wanted to write pop songs, um, we didn't want to have a song just based around one loop or sample. We wanted songs with an intro and a verse and a chorus and a bridge. And so that required a lot of uh, searching to find the right elements. So, you know, we had a library of stuff built up over the previous few years of, of good samples that's kind of stood out to us. Um, and then people were sort of digging around, uh, coming up with stuff. And then I guess I was the sort of the hub that everything flowed through and I was sort of putting it together. So I was finding my own samples, but I'm, also the guys could drop over samples. And so in that way, um, we had enough source material to kind of pull it together. Tom Lanick jones also remembers Robbie and Darren becoming social pariahs during this manic creative phase. By this stage, both having near identical home studio setups at their respective places and pushing the same punishing schedules. It's hard to describe. I mean, what I'm trying to get my head around is that was so different early on compared to we get to since I left you eventually, but there's a massive chasm, isn't there, in the sound between those early days and Yeah, I remember being quite surprised that there was there was none of the rapping and there was which 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 was such a huge part of the live show. Um, but I just remember um like Robbie and Darren, and they both kind of had their own studios at that time just being like locked away. Um, and that seemed to be, you know, they'd pop their head in at the social gatherings that we were all part of, but then they would be back down to, um, to working on the record. Um, 
And yeah, it was such a joy when it came out. It was completely not what I thought it was going to be, but completely amazing. So it's great. But for Robbie, all of the hard work was beginning to pay handsome dividends. This multitude of samples was beginning to coalesce into something tangible, and he was even discovering the skill of piecing them together in a way that seemed to loosely convey a narrative. At one point, the album was announced as being titled Pablo's Cruise and was to be structured as a quasi-concept album, but even when that conceit was abandoned, tinges of the story remained. I think that that was the exciting bit for me. I just remember, um, like... It's hard, it's hard to put into words, but I could feel it. I could feel this sound emerging and I could feel a narrative emerging. And it's like once that light bulb goes off in your head and you start joining dots between um, different records, but they all make sense to you, it's like this incredible euphoric feeling. Like So it was. I think it began kind of naively with the thought of um, we would make like it would almost be like a, a record with a vague travel theme. And it would be a, a, like an international search for love. So a guy would be like following his one true love around the world and always be like one port behind her and always kind of never quite uh, meeting up. And that was really just a simple device um, to enable us to use all these uh, strange junk store records that we were finding in Melbourne. It was like, you know, Hawaiian strings records and strange, you know, strange different percussive records and Brazilian records and all these different records from around the world. Um, so that that's kind of naively how it began. And then um, as it developed from there, I think it, it hit on a slightly deeper tone and it was like we began to explore themes of like just uh, loss in general. And um, I remember when we made the the opening track, Since I Left You, it just kind of felt like, um, that summed up the feeling of the record in one song. It was like happy and sad at the same time and then we could kind of put other bits into place all around that. Um, it's a hard thing to describe but I think that's the magic of making music with samples. It's like you're, the, you're finding different elements that make sense to you and because of your life experience and, and then you're showing people, hey, these, is, these records are all connected in a way. Like I remember sampling when we sampled Madonna's holiday um that that fit to me because it was the record it's called holiday and we're making this record about travel you know and it's like an, an escaping and so it wasn't just sort of random stuff it was all there for a reason and I also remember finding the Osmond sample where Donny Osmond is singing um ever since the day I, I met you I tried but I just can't get you and and that sample closes the record and it's saying the same thing as um, the opening sample on the record, which is sung by a completely different person in a completely different decade. Um, like joining all those dots was, was just like, um, was a real thrill. Other acts mining the same sample field as the Avalanches, such as US artist DJ Shadow, whose 1996 opus, Introducing, is in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's first completely sampled album, have espoused the belief that their samples help keep the souls of long lost people alive a school of thought that Robbie readily ascribes to. It's it's a beautiful thought. It's a really beautiful thought, and we've explored that more on our latest record. Um, and it's a really humbling thought as well that I'm I'm just here listening to these records, and um, I'm part of a lot a great a much larger continuum of music. So 
Because every record, I mean, I, I wonder, say it was made in the 1950s and someone sounds so heartbroken when they're singing and you wonder what was going on in their life at the time. Then there's all the musicians that played on that record and the producers and the engineers in the studio and then that just becomes one small element of, a, of our song with another record from another decade. And then I'm just like another small element of someone who's putting these things together and then they get played out on the radio and... Um, they float into someone else's life that day and the listener is part of the whole big continuum as well. So it's like it's a beautiful thought. Um, and I also think about the people that owned the records before me and uh, that they've added crackles to the record, you know, because they've listened to the record over and over and maybe they were going through a breakup. And um, so they've spilt wine on the record and, and played the same 70s over and over and over again because they miss their lovers so much. And, and there are those crackles who add a certain character to um, an avalanche song. So the, the previous listeners are part of it as well. When do you know when it's finished? Like, is there a time, do you know when the song's finished or could you theoretically go down that rabbit hole forever? This is, um, this is a great topic and something that um, we've learned the hard way in the years since is that the technical limitations of what we had back then were, were a really good thing. So the samplers could only hold so much audio and they only had so much memory. And um, we progressed from zip, uh, sorry, from floppy disks to zip drives. And a zip drive, basically, I would just fill one and that's as much sound as I could load at one time. And that, so that would be a song and that's, <laughs> that's when a song was finished. But we didn't, we also didn't overthink things. It was just like we kind of, when you're in a beautiful flow like that, you just know when a song's done and we only... Like for our next record, Wildfire, we made hundreds and hundreds of songs and then went back through them and tried to figure out, figure out what the record would be. But with Since I Left You, there's, we only made 18 and there's 18 on the record. Or well, I think we made 19 actually. But it's like it wasn't this endless, um, you know, like, like today you can have endless versions of songs and you can go on forever. But back then it's kind of like we did it, it felt right, and it was done. So there you have it. Since I Left You is coming together nicely in Melbourne bedrooms, ready to be unleashed on an unsuspecting world, one not expecting this glorious piece of joyous music at all, let alone from this raucous and ramshackle noise group. But before we sign off on episode one, we have one more character to introduce, one who will play an integral part in the Since I Left You saga. It's another Tony, but this time a young studio engineer from the dance world named Tony Espy, who's been tapped to mix since I left you alongside Robbie and Darren in their production guise of Bobby Dazzler. Well, I, I remember going to like see them play live. I think it was somewhere in Carlton um, at about four in the morning. And it was like, uh, it was it was absolute chaos. It was like, I'd heard that it was kind of a bit beasties and a bit punk and everything, but it was like, it was more like it was probably more punk than beasties, I'd say at that point. Um, and it was totally wild and everyone just was swapping instruments and um, there just seemed to be no real form. You know, it was just, it was just frenetic energy that had to be expressed somehow. And I think they were just getting into synths and, and not even sure if they had a sampler at that point. Um, so so that's, that's where I, I first saw them. And then not long after that, their manager at the time, Bernadette Ryan, um, she contacted me and said that the Avalanche was about to make their first proper record after Al Producto. And um, 
and would I be interested? And I said, sure, you know, like I loved what I saw, it was crazy, and I expected it to be like that. Um, and then when I got it, I'm pretty sure it was a cassette that she sent me of the, the first demo of the album was on a cassette. Um, and I remember getting it and putting it in the car and starting to drive. And when Since I Left You, the song started and came on, I just had to find somewhere to pull over. I couldn't, I was just like, this music has never been heard before. This this is this is something so fresh. And even though the Beasties had done it with Paul's Boutique, et cetera, et cetera, this was beyond because it was pretty much 100% samples, whereas the Beasties stuff and all that was like lots of drum machines and played things and all that sort of stuff with samples on top, whereas this was just all samples. Um, and it was just such a, because at that point I'd been working on just sort of dance music for a long time and it it was so, the dance music was kind of so structured and, and um, formulaic compared to what they were doing, which was completely unpredictable. So that's how I first heard it. And then I just kept listening to it over and over because the, the cassette at that point was reasonably in a similar order as to how the album came out kind of thing. Um, even though the songs changed during that time, it was pretty much in that same sort of mixtape type format. So I got the, the vibe of what they were trying to do early on because I could just hear it through the way that the songs all linked together. And then there were, you'd hear little bits of an earlier song in a later song, that kind of thing, which... I hadn't really heard that before. Um, so that's how she, they approached me. And they also knew that I had spent most of the 90s working on dance records um, after working on, like, other stuff in the 80s. And then dance, 90s was pretty much all kind of club-oriented stuff. So they knew that I'd, I'd done, like, hundreds of dance records during that time and, and they wanted someone to come to the project with that kind of background as opposed to rock. Um so, because at that point in Australia, you know, it was still kind of pretty much rock was king. So um, they kind of wanted someone to sort of help them realise it that was coming from that side as opposed to the rock and roll band, traditional band setup sort of thing. So I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, and then the wonderful but terrible journey started. A wonderful but terrible journey indeed. We'll stop episode one there, but please come back for the next two instalments because this idyllic story so far still has some pretty fascinating twists and turns to navigate. In September 1999, the world got its first taste of Since I Left You when the single Electricity was released on 12-inch single in Australia and 7-inch in the UK, the album version of which goes a little bit like this.
Thanks for listening to part one of Rewind's look at the Avalanche's amazing debut since I left you. There's two more parts dropping soon, so please join us again because it's a great story. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review us on your favourite platform or app as it really helps spread the word. Catch you soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Marks. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.